Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kei te whakarongo mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. He hotake pana ki tō tātou au whānui. You're with our changing world on RNZ National, and now the ongoing legacy of New Zealand's first government scientist. It's been 150 years since Sir James Hector arrived in Wellington to take up his position as the country's first government scientist. During his time, he set up the Colonial Museum, now Te Papa, the Geological Survey, now GNS Science, the New Zealand Institute, which became the Royal Society of New Zealand, the Wellington Botanical Gardens, weather forecasting, and he even standardised time across the country. As if all this weren't enough, Hector's biographer Simon Nathan tells me he also had a biological period, even though he first arrived in Wellington hoping to find gold in the North Island. He was set off in Otago to work for the Otago province because New Zealand was split into provinces then and the central government took him on in 1865 and they wanted to find gold in the North Island and he moved up to Wellington because that was just when the capital was moving from Auckland to Wellington as well. So his reason for moving to Wellington was still geological? Yes, that was just part of his job. He did the geological survey but he had much broader ideas about what was involved in the job. He'd had a year in London in 1860 when he was writing up the Canadian research and he could see how the London scientific scene worked. He went to meetings of the Royal Society and the Geological Society and the Geographical Society and he also went to see how the British Geological Survey worked and all the brand new museums and um, and so he came out with an idea that, that was an, all in his mind when he came to New Zealand. So inspiration from there, from that Victorian idea of a, of an explorer, yes. really, much broader yes. than a geologist. So he got into fossil hunting, natural history. Well, I think he just thought that was part of the job. He was exploring a new country, and as well as looking at the rocks, he should be looking at the plants and the animals. And he was very strong on weather recording because he'd done that in Canada. That was part of being an explorer. You kept a record of the weather. What is now Te Papa? was then, thanks to him, was the Colonial Museum. So how did he manage to convince the New Zealand government that he too should have a museum? Well, when he was interviewed, they asked what he would need to do a geological survey, and he said that he would need to be in the field, but he would need a museum to store all the specimens and a laboratory to analyse all the mineral specimens that he was going to find. So, And the government agreed. And one of the amazing things is that he managed to get his museum built very quickly. So he was first appointed on the 1st of April, 1865, and the museum opened its doors uh, on the 8th of December, 1865. And it's very hard to imagine something like that being built these days. They'd still be arguing about the concept plans. (laughs) (laughs) So were the first things that he actually had on display there or stored there, were there geological specimens? There are a mixture of all sorts of things. One of the people that was very helpful to him in the early days was a man called Walter Mantell, um, who 
was a member of parliament, but he was also very interested in science, and his father was quite a famous geologist in Britain, and Mantell helped him to collect material. And in fact, Hector wasn't there when the museum opened its doors uh, in 1865. He had to go off into the field, so he left Mantell to lay out the museum. Uh, and Mantell had a collection of his own specimens, and he'd got other material that Hector had brought up from Otago. So he, Mantell actually laid out the museum and decided where things were to go. Mantell, in his travels around New Zealand, had collected a number of Moa skeletons which he sent back to Britain, and he was regarded at that time as the New Zealand e expert on Moas. So he, he hoped to put together some of the collections of Moas and other fossils that were in the Colonial Museum. Did Hector himself become involved and interested? Oh, yes. In... Yes, no, Hector had a finger in everything. He was intensely interested, uh, but I think one of the reasons he managed to achieve so much is that he was also a very good delegator. Uh, and so he would find someone like Mantell or one of his staff who would look after a particular responsibility. So Mantell did a lot of the work looking after the layout of the museum. And when it was expanded about 10 years later, Hector went overseas and again Mantell laid it out. Um, in weather forecasting, his clerk, Richard Gore, did most of the donkey work. Uh, but Hector kept a fairly close eye on what was going on on everything he did, and he gave directions as to what they were to do. But he left the actual doing, to, often left the, the doing to other people. So do you feel, having, having spent a lot of time with his letters and with everything that we know about him, was he essentially a nice guy who could inspire people, or was he a controlling sort of person? Oh, no, I think he was... I think he probably was fairly controlling in that he did keep a fairly tight eye on what was going on, but he was also encouraging... I think that's one of the interesting things I found out from reading his letters, that he encouraged his staff to write up scientific papers and to go off in particular directions and to go collecting plants and animals uh, so that they could be properly described. So he had an idea where science should go, and he knew he couldn't do it himself, so he had to encourage other people to undertake particular projects. And one of the things I feel we have particular reason to be thankful to James Hector for was the fact that he was very keen that anything that was done under his control was published. And so he set up the first scientific journal in New Zealand, the Transactions of the New Zealand Institute, and it was really his baby. He edited it for over 35 years, and he kept a very close eye on what was going on there. But he also encouraged people to contribute papers that he thought were significant to the transactions his own staff, but but amateur scientists all around New Zealand. Would you go as far as saying that he perhaps encouraged a um, local appreciation of all that knowledge? Because up to that point, and including Hector's time, everything would be, every discovery, essentially, or every specimen would have a strong connection with Britain, partly be sent to Britain or worked on there. Well, yes, before... Hector arrived, almost all plants and animals and fossils were sent over to overseas experts to Britain and some were sent to Germany. Uh, it was just assumed that most of the interested scientists in New Zealand were essentially collectors who would provide material for overseas, the, the professional scientists overseas. But once Hector got the transactions of the New Zealand Institute underway, people started describing plants and animals and aspects of New Zealand science within New Zealand. And so this was really critical to the growth of, of science in New Zealand. It had a place where you could describe things, but people stopped thinking that we had to send material overseas to have it described. And perhaps recognition that this was, is 
as far as flora and fauna is concerned, a unique place. Yes. Well, there was tremendous interest overseas in New Zealand's fauna and flora because it was so distinctive. And Hector was very keen to build up a library of overseas materials so that um, plants and animals could be described, could be compared to overseas species, but he had no money to do this. So he set up a system whereby copies of the transactions were sent to a large number of overseas libraries and material was exchanged. And this had the effect of drawing uh, New Zealand material to the, to the eyes of overseas scientists. A lot of people, of course, um, know the name Hector from Hector's Dolphin. Mm. How did that come about? Hector, from about 1870 to 1875, had what I call his biological period. Uh, he'd got his organisations all set up and he decided that the museum would concentrate on describing species and producing catalogues of New Zealand fauna and flora. And so he encouraged different people to work on different animal groups. For example, Walter Buller, who produced Buller's Book of Birds, um, and Frederick Hutton both worked on New Zealand birds. And his, um, his botanist, John Buchanan, and other people worked on plants. And Hector clearly kept cetaceans, that's whales and dolphins, for himself. And he described quite a lot of New Zealand whales and dolphins. And there was a lot of interest in this overseas um, because New Zealand has quite a diverse fauna uh, of whales passing through and dolphins around the coastline. And so he wrote a major paper in 18... I can't remember if it was 1872 or 1873, which is a summary of what we know. Uh, on Whales and Dolphins, called On the Whales and Dolphins of New Zealand. It was published in the Transactions of the New Zealand Institute. And this was where he first described the dolphin we know now as Hector's dolphin. And there's a lovely illustration of it, which is drawn by him and lithographed by John Buchanan, his draftsman. So it was clearly Hector's original work. And as well as Hector's dolphin, he also described the species known as Hector's beaked whale. Did he realise at the time that Hector's dolphin is endemic to New Zealand? I think so, and one of the, the things that is of great interest to people studying the dolphin now is the fact that it was much more widespread when Hector originally described it than it is now. Do you know anything about why he was particularly interested in cetaceans? Because in some ways, being marine species, you'd think that if you're coming to a new place, it would be less likely to find something unique. You'd be looking more terrestrial. Well, we don't have a great number of uh, terrestrial animals, course and other people were interested in the birds but I have a theory that um, Hector had been trained as a medical doctor and he was used to dissecting things and I think that dolphins and whales of course are very big but dolphins were something that uh, and whales it was something that he could dissect himself he wasn't working through a microscope so I think it was a, a group that he thought he could make a contribution on uh, he didn't just do it by himself. He was working with a Dr Gray from the British Museum. And so there's a, a correspondence going on between them and he was comparing New Zealand's whales and dolphins with what was known overseas. So he was really using the skills that he had acquired during his medical studies, really, because he never practised as a doctor. He has a medical degree yeah. and studied medicine, but never Well, practiced. he studied medicine, but in, in those days um, there was no science degree. In Scotland, if you wanted to be interested in science, you had to do uh, a degree in medicine. So Hector did his medical degree, but he also did, he did papers on botany and geology as part of that degree. That was just accepted. 
So that was his way into science, yes. and at the yeah. time the but, only way into yes. science. Really. Well, I don't think he ever wanted to practice as a doctor. In fact, at one stage, he, he comments in one of his letters um, when there were financial cutbacks and he was worried he might lose his, his job, and the, he said, what a terrible thing if I have to go back to doctoring. <laughs> <laughs> now, another thing that we have, Hector, to thank for is the standardisation of time in New Zealand. I mean, time was traditionally determined astronomically, and so the time does vary slightly from place to place. And this wasn't really a big concern in the days when precise time wasn't a big issue. Greenwich Mean Time had been established, I guess, a century before that, and this was used for, for navigation. But in New Zealand, there was no particular worry about time. It would be determined each town by the local astronomer. But it was when the telegraph, the first Cook Strait cable, went th through in 1868 that it suddenly became important because you'd have t the telegraph messages were re relayed from place to place and you had to have an agreement on when the telegraph offices were going to be opened so that the operators were there to send the messages on. You couldn't have one office closing 15 minutes before the other. And so someone in Wellington decided, well, we'll just adopt local Wellington time as the standard time. And people in Dunedin got to hear of this and objected strongly. And this was one of these little political issues that turns up from time to time. And it was one of those things that was an embarrassment to the government and they didn't care, they just wanted to sort it out. So they did which they, what they were to do so often and asked Dr Hector for his opinion. And Hector actually did have some familiarity with this whole issue because when he was in Canada, in his report he had commented on time across Canada, which, which is a huge continent, and suggested that they have time zones based on li lines of longitude. So in New Zealand, New Zealand was long and narrow, and he came up with a nice compromise, uh, the longitude of 172 degrees 30 minutes, uh, which passes through Christchurch, but as a good average for New Zealand, and so that was adopted as the standard time. And you hear no more controversy after that. So that seemed an eminently sensible solution. But it was fascinating that because of that, New Zealand was one of the first countries in the world to have a standard time. Do you have any sense what Hector would make of the whole suite of institutions, including the museum, but also the Royal Society? What would he think of them? I think he would be very gratified. I mean, one of the things that I think is extraordinary, looking at Hector's achievements, is that all the organisations he set up or was in charge of have survived till today. That is extraordinary, really. Yes, yes, the, uh, there's the Geological Survey, which is now GNS Science, and there's the Colonial Museum, which is Te Papa, and the Co Colonial Laboratory, um, which is ESR, and the Colonial Botanic Gardens, which is Wellington Botanic Gardens, and there's a the Meteorological Office, which is now Met Service, and the New Zealand Institute is the Royal Society of New Zealand. And those all survive, and I think one of the extraordinary things is Hector was in charge of them all. Nowadays you have, I, I haven't counted, but you have about six boards and six chief executives and large staff, and I think Hector would have had a little chuckle, the fact uh, that he had the weight of responsibility for all those organisations on his shoulder. But I think he would be so pleased because it, it's actually very hard to imagine that an organisation that's set up today will survive more or less unchanged for 150 years. And that was Simon Nathan discussing his new biography, James Hector, Explorer, Scientist, Leader, published by the Geoscience Society of New Zealand. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. And you can find more stories on our webpage, 
rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Ka kite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.